Hello and welcome to the Dream Swarm podcast. This is your home for supernatural film, stories and art. I'm your host, magic realist filmmaker Andy Mark Simpson. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Dream Swarm podcast. We're coming up with a special Christmas edition and we're interviewing Al Reidenauer who is the author of Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas and is also the host of the Bone and Sickle podcast. So welcome Al. Hello, thanks for having me on. So this episode is the second part of a double bill that Al has joined us for. Last week we discussed his podcast, Bone and Sickle, which looks at the darker side of folklore, history and horror and where those things meet. You can check out that interview on our website dreamswarm.org or on the other podcast hosting sites. That's well worth checking out but for today we're in Christmas mode, our Christmas special edition. We're going to talk about the Krampus, who he is, what he is, particularly we're going to talk about Al's book Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. So Al, could you tell us about the background for your book? I think I started research in 2016, but, but I uh, got in excited about actually experiencing the Krampus activities in, in Europe. And in the process of researching that, I found that there was a lot, I was getting a lot of original information translating German sites. There wasn't much available in English. So the more I got and uh, more uh, information like that I accumulated, the more I realized it was unique. I thought there was something there for a book. So I ended up working on a book published by Feral House called The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. The Old Dark Christmas title is appended because I was running into so much more that was way beyond just the Krampus, which is kind of a is more of an immediate book for audiences because there was some sort of pop culture knowledge of the Krampus already. I've got my copy in front of me. It's a fantastic book. Could you briefly introduce us to what the book is? And then after that, we'll talk in further depth about who or what Krampus is. So what's the book about? The book is the only English language historical survey of the Krampus tradition, how it's being revived now in contemporary Europe and also in the United States, to some extent in England also. There have been other books out, in some handsome books that are collections of Krampus postcards that circulated in the late 19th or early 20th century. But there's not really much text in there. I think there's a forward of a couple of pages. So this is the the first and so far the only book in English that looks at how the tradition of the Krampus evolved and it's really the end of a long it has, a, it has quite a long ancestry of different trends sort of cross-pollinating or cross-breeding the first part of the book I do try to just directly address what is the Krampus how are these traditions celebrated in Europe how are they celebrated in the more traditional regions and how are they celebrated in uh, the less traditional regions of Europe? How has that changed a bit over time? And including the nitty gritty of how much, how much do the costumes weigh? How much do they cost? And details like that, that you know, I think come into people's heads when they see the videos or photographs of the activities in Europe now. And then from there, I start looking at the different streams uh, that flowed into this tradition. A chapter, for instance, on the church and the early uh, mid or medieval plays and theatrical traditions that were part of the evolution. And then, then I turn to look at the pagan side of things, which sometimes is a bit less pagan than people suspect, or certainly a little less old, but the, the winter traditions of the returning dead, the wild hunt, 
and the Pershtin, which are uh, sort of the, the direct antecedent to the Krampus. So, uh, so then it's basically it's sort of a, the book is kind of a trip backwards through history to some extent. We shouldn't say that because there's also uh, come about chapter six, it broadens out to look at other folk traditions of the Alp. Like there's a thing, there's a celebration called the Wolfsaufstreiben, the driving out of the wolves, which involves processions through the streets with bells. And it would look, it could remind a lot of people of, of the Krampus events, the Krampus parades, uh, Krampus runs. And there's also a sort of something called a life uh, wand, which is related to the switch the Krampus uses. So I'm just basically looking uh, that th uh, looking sideways at other traditions that seem to parallel the Krampus and so a lot some of some some speculation of how they might be related his historically but also just sort of an appreciation of similar winter festivals that that happen uh, concurrent with the Krampus. That answer there is an indication of the depth and it kind of only brushes the surface really of how much information there is actually in this book. It's an incredible detail and there's so much brilliant artwork in there as well the, the photographs of these traditions as they are currently alive today. I mean, they're spectacular photographs and all the artwork and every detail, like you say, discussing the, the weight of the costumes and the cost of the costumes. There's really a lot of detail in there. How would you sum up what the Krampus tradition is in Austria at the moment? What happens? What is the folk custom? What's it all about? Well, the folk custom, there's a handful boogeymen, we call them in American at least, sort of warning characters that parents would use to tell their kids. And you know, certainly there's a number of things, like, figures like this in England, there's certain figures, Jenny Greenteeth, you'd tell your kids will get you if you go too near the, to the water, you know that. So German traditions would have similar creatures to keep their kids out of uh, indoors at night or away from the water. And the Krampus is basically uh, sort of what the parents would use to warn their kids to behave, you know, come the winter season. The form of the Krampus sort of evolves because it's evolved in agricultural alpine setting. And that would mean sheep and goat herding cheese making so the goat horns came from what was available the sheep skins that they wear or the goat fur came from that so the look of the thing kind of evolved out of that it's kind of bound to that agricultural environment there's also the schwarze man the blackish man meaning like the shadowy man or the man the man with the sack would another character the german or austrian parents would warn their child about so the krampus is just a version of that that comes in the beginning of december and, and then it, because the this is also just as important that it was a very catholic world and so it was attached this this tradition of having these scare creatures was attached to St. Nicholas. I always talk about it as a sort of good cop, bad cop routine. Nicholas would be the figure who would reward and the Krampus obviously would punish. So all of this, what I've, so far what I'm talking about is just sort of oral tradition. And then sometime, the, the Krampus as we know it, there were other visiting costumed characters that would come around houses in the winter, but the Krampus was paired with Nicholas. And so sometime in the late 1800s, for the most part, uh, you'd start seeing person costumed as a St. Nicholas visiting homes in the company of, say, six Krampuses who are carrying chains to make noise, but also to represent their subjugation to the saint. So you have these house visits. This is the most traditional form in Europe that would be, like I said, it's uh, maybe 10 people, maybe a, the Nicholas figure. He has a couple of angel helpers, women usually, women costumed as angels, and somebody who carries the treats, and then you have the Krampuses. And then the small villages, Alpine villages, would have a number of people playing the Saint Nicholas. And he'd have an, each of these saints would have a number of different Krampuses. You have these groups crisscrossing the town on St. Nicholas Eve, uh, December December 5th. And so out of this, people found it entertaining just to watch these people traverse the streets of their town. And so sort of out of that grew 
this idea that we organize these things, these people into the Krampus runs that we hear about now in English, Campus Loifa, the Krampus runs. And so that became sort of more of a sort of a different thing, divorced from the whole, was the child good or bad? Does the child need to be rewarded or punished? And that became more of an, a, just a kind of raucous, fun, fun event for adult. The whole Nicholas and the sort of pedagogic religious aspect of it all was sort of set aside. And it just became more of a fun for teens and adults. And then that became more and more organized. And you see now, you know, streets are closed off and there's barricades and there's police and there's whole families. And there's very elaborate shows of costuming and the Krampus will ride on elaborate floats even sometimes. So, so it became then sort of from that form, I think people in America... Um, um, and in the UK and elsewhere sort of started copying that. You see the Krampus runs. So these more organized Krampus runs that weren't about the correct moral upbringing of the child kind of became their own entity. And I think that's more what you see copied internationally. In, in the US, there's a few uh, imitation Krampus runs and I know there's some in England, Whitby, there's one that I was I'm friends with those people. That's kind of the modern, the, the modern variant. And then there are things like there's lots of fantasy fiction and the Krampus movie and stuff that have really nothing to do with the, the actual tradition. So it's come a long way from its uh, religious and somewhat pagan Alpine roots. I mean, a couple of things. It felt to me like reading the book and the about these Krampus runs that it's a very community orientated event it almost felt a bit to me almost like a football team or something like a community football team type atmosphere where they like a team that pulls together to make all similar costumes and they who run around together and they do events throughout the year not just on that 5th of December Krampus one yeah. night that's right isn't it yeah absolutely uh, they're each they're called a it's called a pass the group yeah it's definitely it is an all your kind of social club and one of the people that was a good resource for my book is uh, he lives in Los Angeles and he knew that he compared it to American football teams like being on a Krampus pots would be like being on a on a football team it gets you a certain kind of status in your uh, teenage whatever early teen you know the group of young adults you're part of and also there is a camaraderie that la that lasts all year they do events all year of fundraisers to pay for their expenses they, they have a sort of uniform they were a uniform look they don't make their suits for the most part that's pretty rare but they so that they patronize uh, the all the same local artisan who the guy who's the uh, other times a year he's a leather worker but he'll make the suits uh, you know come come fall for the winter events or the wood carver who you know works does other architectural detail other times of the year that he makes masks uh, also on the side. So they have the same so same craft people working working to create their suits. So they have do have the same look. And sometimes a whole troop will change their suit out. And want, you know they'll get tired and they'll all, but they all make an effort to change the suit at the same time. So it was actually it was something I found really remarkable when I first started encountering the photos of the events of how the look of each troop had. It was cohesive, but there's still character in each each of their performers, partly by their performance, but also, you know, the artist gets tired of carving exactly the same mask. Obviously, he doesn't want to do that. So there's a nice family resemblance within each troop. So in Austria, there's, there's this kind of tradition, very strong community tradition. But you hinted there that that has evolved as it's kind of crossed over the English Channel and then the Atlantic as well that maybe the popular culture vision of Krampus is very different to that traditional. We maybe see, we've looked at the, the 2015 film, I think it was, The Krampus, which had a, bits of that are a bit silly, but I, I like the animated folklore section in the middle. But it's kind of, we're given an image of like a, a trickster figure uh, who is like an anti-Santa. But actually you were describing that it, in the traditional folklore, it's under the servitude of St. Nicholas, where Nicholas is 
playing the good guy, but also is in charge of the Krampus figure who is going to meet out the punishment. So there's a relationship there, a deeper relationship between Nicholas and Krampus in the old folklore. Yes, absolutely. The appeal that the Krampus has in the U.S., and I guess the same in my to say, I know it's the same also in in your country, is a sort of countercultural appeal, but it's extremely traditional in its birthplace. Definitely in the bigger cities, Germans and Austrians have come to kind of share this idea of the Krampus as a counterculture figure, but he definitely is, it's a very Catholic tradition. And like I was saying earlier, the chains that he wears are symbols of his subjugation in Nicholas. I often hear people talk about the Krampus as the evils, well, they say Santa Claus, they don't say St. Nicholas here, over here, but he's definitely not the evil opposite or on the same level. He is a, he's considered a, a servant. In fact, in Germany, in, towards in the north, they don't have the Krampus, but they have a figure called Knecht Wuchbrecht. And Knecht is, uh, means it's like knave or servant, it means uh, servant. He's a, so these, these characters, they come alongside as servants of the higher Catholic mission. So even, even though it has this sort of feel of rebellion for Americans that, who never had it as part of their culture, it doesn't, in, in more traditional regions of, of the Alps, Bavaria and Austria, definitely wouldn't wouldn't have that no matter i mean yes the krampuses will they'll choreograph their stuff marching to or their performances to metal music and so forth i mean that all of the sort of american take on things has seeped into it and they even and american horror films have been an influence austrians call they have they have a kind of mask they call the horror mask or the new mask which is admittedly considered to be a part influenced by hollywood there's definitely a cross-cultural uh, cross-pollination I, I mean to say both ways evolution is always interesting and fun and the krampus exists in a world that has changed and will continue to change so they don't mean to be too curmudgeonly about what the proper tradition is i think it's good that people know where it, where it comes from and know certainly how it's understood in its in its home country yeah i guess the, and that's the nature of well every cultural aspect that we have but but also folklore in particular travels and and morphs and and is adopted do you think the messaging of the krampus then what do you think the message is do you think it's still rooted in that catholic uh, kind of catechism of of catholic belief or has that morphed what is the purpose of the krampus today and what what is the messaging behind it even in traditional regions though originally the nicholas saint nicholas would arrive in the house and as a sort of test of whether the child's been good and deserves his blessing and like the very small gifts he would bring to us not like an American Christmas, but he would bring some treats. Or more to the point, whether the kid deserves to have the Krampus come in and scare the <laughs> scare him to death. The the test would be to recite some sort of catechism verse, some Bible verse, or something that was committed to memory. But even in traditional regions, now that's sort of switched over to some, uh, the child will be, uh, recite some memorized poem or perform, uh, sing a song or perform instrumentally, uh, play something on the piano or whatever, whatever the kid's been working on. And the use of fear or the connection with the idea of fearful children children is kind of misunderstood. I have just been seeing children around Krampuses in Europe. I got something very different out of it from Americans want to fall back on cliches about Germans just being a cool, cruel, cold-hearted people obsessed with discipline. And I won't say that such things don't exist, but what I saw is uh, children overcoming fear and children like one of the things I mentioned in my book is uh, being at a Krampus run in Munich and seeing some 
kid that was visibly trembling as the Krampuses were approaching. And so much so that other people around noticed that he was trembling. And as they got closer, the parents kind of gave him a little support. They kind of pushed them forward and said, you can do it. And this, the Krampuses are actually pretty well trained. There's a gross misunderstanding to think that they're there to actually scare kids. They're definitely there to try to scare 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and do their best, do their worst there. But with little kids, they the Krampus here, for instance, Scott kind of made himself low, like if you approach a dog that may bite or might be frightened. So he kind of got made low, made himself low, bent down, got small, made himself smaller and extended his hand. The kid took his hand and then, then the, just the smile that broke out on the kid's face, everybody around I noticed was smiling. And so I kind of remember that, tell people about that because I think the kids are nervous and they're scared when Nicholas and Krampus would visit. But the sense of overcoming the fear, I think is a great, healthy, productive thing for children to learn, you know, on their way to adulthood. And so I think it's more that than anything else. Whether or not there's any religious content attached to that, I think that is something that's survived. And it's, you know, I think it's one reason the whole tradition continues to survive. What do you think is the future of the Krampus? You, you mentioned the cross-cultural approaches and, and things influencing Krampus. People in the US and UK becoming aware of Krampus, but then also how these Hollywood films have influenced how the Austrians present their Krampus novels and things out what do you think is going to happen in the future with the Krampus that's a good question <laughs> I think there will be many Krampuses or Krampuses that German if you want to do that but I think there's will be Krampuses and different Krampuses belonging to different cultures we are I mean we already have that actually it's kind of hard to know also because we've everything's been on hold for a couple of years with all of our plague happening so I, it's I haven't had much input over the last few years to see where things are seem to be headed you know I doubt I don't think that the home visit traditional is going to ever be part of American culture I think that, you know, in general, there will be a sort of globalization of the tradition, which comes from how Americans embrace the tradition, which is, you know, a little bit unfortunate. I think it's, this, I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't have a very good answer for this. I, I will say that Austrians and, and Bavarians I've spoken to are kind of, there's a mixed attitude. Some people are worried that Americans misunderstand it, which is the case, but also there was a lot of pride. I, you're mentioning the photos in my book. Basically, they're all from different troops that I contacted, and most of them didn't know that there was an interest in American were excited to share their photos in the book and have a little mention of their group's name. I, I think it's just always going to be the tug and push and pull of some not liking the spread and the evolution of a tradition and some pushing it forward, some holding it back. I'm, I don't have a good prediction. As I said, I think it will just, I think it will diversify and start heading different directions and we'll probably have Krampuses running around in the spring, meaning something altogether different in 10 years. I don't know, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what could happen. Krampuses influenced my writing as well in some things I'm working on so I'm sure there will be more artworks and more kind of cultural sharing and films and, and novels and everything that goes along with that I just wanted to end by just talking about your book again and how people can buy it so as I said before it's such an incredible book with so much depth and as a study of folk customs and folk art and and history it's, it's fantastic so how can people follow you and how can they buy your book the book's available in any online bookstore. People very kindly sometimes ask me about whether I'd like them to buy it from the publisher. And for the publisher's sake, I'd say, yes, please go to feralhouse.com, F-E-R-A-L, house.com. It doesn't really make a financial difference to me. And I don't know if it even makes that much difference to them. But they also have a lot of other interesting titles that you could browse through. My book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, is available from Amazon UK, Amazon 
and the .com in the US and other Amazons, I'm sure. I do have a website, alrightnower.com, which kind of documents some other things I've been involved in. Or also they can contact me. Probably the best the one I'm, site I'm most attentive to these days is through my podcast website, Bone and Sickle, boneandsickle.com. Yeah, so they can go to your website or, or boneandsickle.com, which is your podcast, which we've talked about. So yeah, I would suggest people follow Bone and Sickle if you love podcasts about folklore and horror and the darker sides of history. And if you're into old dark folklore around Christmas time, then the Krampus and the old dark Christmas is full of loads of folklore about the Krampus, but also other figures in Alpine folklore as well. So I would suggest to the audience to follow Bone and Sickle and also to buy the book Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. I just want to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been brilliant having you on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. So thanks again to Al Reidenauer for telling us all about the Krampus. If you want more of the folklore and mythology and the whole magic of the Christmas, Yule, Solstice and Winter period, our website www.dreamswarm.org is full of content, videos, artwork, stories, links to elsewhere to help you really soak up the magic of this season. So in the meantime, behave yourselves, watch out for Krampus and have a Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dream Swarm podcast. I've been your host, Andy Mark Simpson. We hope you'll join us for the next one. Remember, you can subscribe to stay in touch with future episodes and follow us at the website www.dreamswarm.org or follow on Twitter and Instagram at Dreamswarm. And we look forward to joining you for more supernatural film stories and art. In the meantime, be creative, be curious, be kind. We'll see you soon.